This is Better Benefits, a podcast from the team at Brella Insurance. We're talking about how to use employee benefits to build a world where health hardships don't create financial burdens. If you're a broker or employer looking for fresh ideas and new products employees will actually use, this show's for you. I'm Laura Cave, Director of Marketing, and I'm here with our Chief Revenue Officer, Mike Cirillo, for Better Benefits, episode number six. Today, we're going to be talking to Anita Ward. She is the Chief Development Officer at Salary Finance, and she's got some really interesting research about the impact of financial stress on employees and their employers. And they've got some powerful solutions that can help employers turn that around for improved peace of mind and productivity. Mike, how's it going today? It's going well, Laura. Great to be back at it again with you for episode six. Uh, Best part of the week for me. Excited to uh, be here. Yeah, me too. So far in the podcast, we have had guests talking about every corner of health insurance and healthcare, but um, really excited about today's conversation because it's not about that. It's about financial wellness and and the financial side of the picture. Can you kind of orient us a little bit in how financial wellness benefits fit into the employee benefits picture? Sure. I mean, it, it's it's all you know very connected, and I'm I'm really glad we're going here today with this conversation because financial wellness is a big part of the picture, and employees are much better prepared to handle the cost of a health issue if they're able to save and if they're staying out of debt or if they have lenders with fair rates and terms and they're able to make regular payments. The problem is though, too many families say that uh, that's that's not possible. In fact, a recent uh, study over the summer came out where more than 25% of adults said that they would have to borrow money to cover a $500 medical expense. And it's just, it's really uh, disheartening. So you've got folks like last week, Dave Chase from our last episode talked about you know how the work they're doing is trying to minimize that $500 bill, make it a $250 bill. You've got the good work we're doing here at Brella which puts a few hundred dollars in someone's hands to help them pay that bill. But then you've got folks like salary finance that are focused on helping the family get into better financial shape. And obviously that's very important. Can you tell us, uh, and obviously we'll hear from Anita on this, but can you give us a little background on salary finance's unique position in the market? How different is what they're doing? Yeah, it, it is different. And they're certainly a, a really uh, great organization. I think what they're doing is unique because they're focused on on both the borrowing and the saving side of the spectrum. And they're laser focused on the impact personal finances have on our health, our happiness, and, and our home and work life. Today, they reach over 3 million employees. So helping those employees get on top of their finances by learning positive financial habits, advancing their earned pay to meet unexpected expenses and and borrowing responsibly and and, and saving simply. So, uh, but let's hear more from Anita herself. And Anita Ward is an applied anthropologist devoted to building inclusive business and community ecosystems. Currently, she's chief development officer at Salary Finance. Anita, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. 
Hi, Mike. Hi, Laura. And Mike, by the way, I'm not sure. I think I should hire you for salary finance. Thanks for providing the color commentary around what we do. <laughs> Uh, it's a great story, Anita. We're excited to, to hear more from you. Thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about your journey, if you wouldn't mind, and, and what brought you to your current role at, at Salary Finance. Absolutely. So I have to tell you that this question becomes a very emotional one for me, because as I think about my path and, and how it delivered me to Salary Finance, I kind of reflect on how each experience has a lesson and it made me really think about my destiny because um, financial dignity, it's a really personal journey for me. Um, my parents were not financially literate and the consequences of that have shaped me as both an anthropologist and an executive. So Mike, I know as silly as this sounds, I never had a home address. I was homeless for most of my childhood. And by the time I was a sophomore in high school, we had lived in 13 different homes of friends and relatives and shelters and cheap motels and churches. Uh, and then at about 15, my dad piled my mom and the kids, I've got a brother and, and two sisters, piled into a U-Haul and we left Pennsylvania for Las Vegas of all things. I love Vegas, by the way, but um, he hadn't really secured a place for us to live. I think we had $200 to get across the country. So for a bit of time, even that U-Haul was a home in the desert for us. But I'm incredibly eternally optimistic. And I think luck was kind of with me. But at 14 in Vegas, you can get a work permit. And I got a job at McDonald's. And I credit McDonald's for really launching me into a world where I learned about money and business and financial literacy. And so on the one hand, I could bring food to the family. But I also began to really understand what it meant to be financially resilient. And so at 15, I really experienced the power of an employer to make a difference in an employee's life. I mean, who knew that you know a Big Mac would, would make that kind of positive influence? But eventually, the, the story is, is, works out really well because my parents did find their financial footing in Las Vegas and Vegas became home, although I'm now in the you know great city of Atlanta. But I found my way to the University of California and that's where I got my doctorate in cultural anthropology. But I wasn't a traditional anthropologist by any stretch of the imagination. I'm an anthropologist who's looking at corporate culture and corporate behavior and how should businesses behave and what does that mean from both a social and behavioral and even moral at sometimes perspective and through that lens. So my career has been spent in doing cultural transformations of organizations, but there wasn't a box on any org chart. I wasn't thinking ahead, Mike. I just wasn't thinking ahead, but there wasn't a box in org chart that said cultural anthropologist. So I got really lucky that the chief information officer at Occidental Petroleum hired me. And he hired me because he said he didn't understand people. Then he was rolling out technology and really didn't understand the impact culturally and behaviorally, or even how to get people to embrace those tools. So I became an accidental CIO and spent most of my career traversing the worlds of you know, geekdom and, and humandom, if that's a word. And so salary finance for me has been the culmination of this journey. Just prior to joining Salary Finance, I was president of a nonprofit organization, a great nonprofit called Operation Hope. 
And I worked first as a transformation officer to build and scale them. But their focus was on financial empowerment for the underserved. So we, uh, at that point, did cultural, I mean, I'm sorry, financial literacy training. We had coaches in communities inside bank branches. And I got an appreciation for how many people like me at the time didn't didn't have the didn't have the means to make it. They were as as the as you think about a month, there wasn't enough money to make it to the end of the month. So while they were experts in budgeting and cash flow, there was always a shortfall. And so learning the power of a coach led me into the salary finance world because the power of technology combined with the power of coaching combined with the power of literacy all wrapped together in terms of culture really provides that springboard to get people to a financially healthy and importantly resilient position. So my path is long. My path is emotional. It's very personal, but salary finance is really the convergence of everything that my path has led me to. My destiny, I think in many ways brought me here with technology, tools, relationships, um, marginalized and vulnerable communities and the need for all of us to find the financial footing that I, you know, learned about so early in life. Wow. I mean, Anita, that is a powerful story and, and background and, and very inspiring. A couple of things. I mean, first, I, I commend you for sharing and, and I commend you for that optimism that it sounds like you, you know, carried forward from a very early age. It's I, I am always encouraged and, and fascinated by just how much the, the power of positive thinking and believing that things will work out can influence our path forward. And, and I think you, you've demonstrated that, you know, this, this theme of financial dignity, I have not heard that term before, but as soon as you said it, it, it like struck me. Would you mind, I mean, I'm sort of putting you on the spot here a little bit. Would you mind just sort of defining in your terms what financial dignity means? Sure. First, thank you for acknowledging. I, I try to tell my story, although I will say that it's been many years where, you know, you keep it, you keep it quietly. You don't share that. I think that money is still a little bit taboo in America to talk about. So I, you know, I was taught to, to hide it. My sister and I um, were <laughs> laughing about our early days in that she once the, the, her teacher asked her for her address and she gave her the address of a motel down the street and the, she got punished. And they called my father in and he said, oh, Rosie's just kidding. You know, she's such a kidder. We were living six people in a motel room at the time, but because it's so taboo to talk about and so taboo to share uh, this notion of, of, you know, financial illiteracy, if you will, I tapped it with financial dignity, thinking that, you know, we all deserve dignity. It's almost a basic human right and financial dignity and, and financial literacy in, in my mind really are are um, basic to everybody and that we as, I think, as a country and definitely we as employers need to provide people with that dignity because in-work poverty is still, I think, a, a dirty little secret in America. There are so many people who live paycheck to paycheck. And it's not just the people who are making less than $50,000 a year, not just our 
low to moderate income populations, but it's also individuals who are in making more than 160,000. We, we're all facing financial stress and we should all have the dignity to find that path and be willing to authentically share that path. So I came to the point of sharing thinking that perhaps if I gave voice to financial dignity, that others might follow and that I'm hopeful that businesses will follow and know that it's just as important to deal with the financial side and not just salary, but the basic understanding of finances. Do you know, I worked in a bank, Mike, I worked in the bank and it wasn't until I was in my early thirties that I actually purchased my first stock and, you know, 401ks aside, right? Uh, so wow. the idea that I had no idea what stock was or how it worked. I had a doctorate from a renowned university, but I never got that financial training. Nobody stepped up through any of, you know, any of my schooling and said, this is why wealth is important. So with salary finance and, and through this question of financial dignity, I think that you take people on this journey from basically surviving to ultimately thriving. So it is a question of how do you provide tools and interventions along the way that help them move along that continuum? And for me, that's a continuum of dignity. Yeah. It sounds like really what this is about is about giving people agency. Yes. The ability to control some things and and optimism, that the vision to be able to see what could be possible if they behaved in a different way or tried different things. And I think it's so fascinating that basically what you're saying is that salary finance is a, a cultural change institution. And your background is is so perfectly suited to that. That's the power of cultural change is, is to actually plant these seeds and the behaviors and the tools that support them, you know, to make those changes. You're you're absolutely right, Laura. It's a question of control. Uh-huh. So my- Parents never felt like they could control their world. Right. And so it, it's just this self-perpetuating uh, scenario at that point where you're so out of control that you can't, you can't focus on what you need to do and what those steps are. And salary finance provides that. It's one of the reasons why when we were founded, we actually were founded as a social purpose organization. So we thought very carefully about uh, what what is our mission? What is our goal? So we have removed all of costs. You know how benefits plans, there's often an associated per employee cost or an employer setup fee or whatever that happens to be. We removed all of the cost and said, let's just implement this as as cultural change agents in an organization for free. Wow. Get a platform out there. Let's get people exposed. And the genesis of salary finance was back in 2015 when one of the founders had an employee who was struggling. She was a lot like my mom, Mm -hmm. right? She was trying to make it, but really didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And thought came to him that she was excluded from the capital markets, both because of her inability to understand the capital markets, but also her financial situation precluded her from access to any capital. So it's one thing to educate people and provide financial literacy, but it's an entirely different thing and much more impactful 
when you can remove the barriers to lending and saving. Right. You know, if, if you think about what's our average credit score, our average credit score is just slightly less than 700%, but you're not, I mean, 700, but you're not going to get a loan in the U.S. if you've got a, you know, subprime credit score. And right. so you're driven into predatory lending or you get nothing. So we perpetuate these cycles of of poverty and these cycles of debt as a result. So it was salary finance was really founded on the idea that give people access to their salaries, which in many ways is just like a business's operating account. Mm-hmm. Let them access their operating account at the time when they have a shortfall and need to manage cash flow. And it is so simple that you wrap behavior change and education with tools that let people, you know, find their way. And I will tell you, we probably would have had a home if my parents could access that wow. or and get so that we could have had a deposit on an apartment. Yeah. Uh, about about 15% of the people who use a salary linked loan do it for deposits, rental deposits. And many of those are women who are escaping, you know, battered situations. So wow. it's it's a very powerful, you're right, cultural change tool that that really drives that dignity in a workplace. Well, I wanted I want you to to tell us more about salary finances specific solutions in a minute, but before we get there, I want you to take us through some of your research because your research has been really powerful at showing, you know, you have a personal testimony and and your founders, you know, really understood these stories on a personal level, but professionally and and as an organization, you've got a view on actually the scope of this problem. So I wondered if we could talk about, you know, what you've found as far as the prevalence of financial stress amongst employees and the impact that it has on employers. And then let's talk about what's how salary finance is solving that. Yeah, you're you're appealing to my geek side, aren't you, Laura? So yes. I, <laughs> I, I um I always ask the the first question around what's the, you know, what are what's the data that's driving the solution? And then what's the efficacy of the program and tools that you're trying to put in place? So when you ask me to speak to the numbers, I get super excited. Good, <laughs> but, they're, but they're awfully compelling in a in a very you know emotional way. Again, that if you look at your employee base, sixty seven percent of your employees say that they're stressed because they're dealing with their financial uh, situation. They're dealing with it on the job, and I'll speak to that impact in a second. But think about that. That's enormous. Sixty seven percent of your employees are dealing with financial stress. And 53% of them do not have, as Mike was saying earlier, don't have the savings set up for an unexpected expense. In fact, during COVID this last year, we found that 21% of employees have borrowed from their retirement savings. So you start thinking about that continuum I shared with you earlier from you know surviving to thriving. If you're cannibalizing your retirement, you're cannibalizing your 401k, and you don't have anything in savings and you don't have financial literacy, then certainly you're not going to find yourself in a place to be resilient. Sadly, 76% of those applicants that apply for a personal loan are turned down. So think about the access to affordable credit. But then here's, for me, the most compelling statistic, which I kept questioning. But of those employees who live paycheck to paycheck, one in four of them make $160,000 a year or more. Wow. So this isn't just 
you know, a situation that is uh, targeted toward LMI communities. However, in COVID, I, it would be remiss if I didn't say that there's been a disproportionate impact on those employees who make less than $40,000 a year because you've got about 40% of the U.S. population makes less than 50000 So that's really what we define as a, an LMI or a low to moderate income employee. And 25% of those lost income during COVID-19. So again, think back to the scenario where you're barely making it paycheck to paycheck, and now you've lost income. 25% of those have lost income. And so what do you do? You have to you know, look at your savings. And of that group that lost income, nearly 40% of them have spent down all of their savings. So we're creating a situation that is untenable for, in my mind, our most vulnerable populations. And maybe at another time we can talk about it, but I really think that it is a diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative in a workplace that should address financial inclusion and pick up the mantle of Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign and bring back that thinking around you know, financial inclusion. But it, it's almost, if I, if I think about the data, I, I think about it, let's, let's just talk about Atlanta, my, you know, where I am today. Our average credit score here in Atlanta is 661. And we have about 36% of our population in Atlanta is a subprime borrower. Their people uh, have about $6,600 in average outstanding credit card balances. 69% of the population, the working population, has less than $1,000 in savings. So you start looking at that and you think, oh, and, and what if I needed to put it on my credit card? That is a subprime borrower and a subprime card. You're talking about, what, 24.9% or 25.9% average APR. So we people are back into a financially stressful situation just as a result of that. And so I, I don't know that this name will resonate with you, but a couple of weeks ago, one of the most spectacular leaders, I think, in the country passed away. Um, the founder of Zappos is Tony Shea. Right. I, I had the great fortune to work with him, actually, in Las Vegas. But I, his favorite saying for me is, just because you can't measure an ROI doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Because he always said, what's the ROI of hugging your mom? Right. So, but when I think about financial well-being, there is an ROI. So let's say you get into the into any workplace and you say, what, what's the ROI of addressing those statistics I just shared with you? Well, the cost of financial well-being, uh, the cost of financial stress rather in a workplace is that you lose, employees lose about three hours a week just worrying about money. So they're on the job worrying about money. They have they have an increase of the use of sick days per year just to deal with financial stress. And that financial stress could be trying to keep your utility bills uh, or trying to keep your utilities on because you've missed a bill, or it could be uh, you know, dealing with a car repossession or a pre-foreclosure. But here's the crazy part if you're an employer. It, they, these employees who are financially stressed are eight and a half times more likely to produce work of less quality. And they're 12 times more likely not to be able to finish their daily tasks at work. 
and I'm glad that Laura, you and Mike get along, but if either one of you was financially stressed, you would have (laughs) 7.7 times more frequency of having troubled relationships with your colleagues. And you're one and a half times more likely to be looking for a new job. You start to add up all of these components, and that's not even dealing with the impact on mental health because these same employees are seven times more likely to be depressed. So you start to wrap the data around the impact of financial stress and whether that's on productivity or absenteeism or presenteeism. I always talk about the people who have retired, but they stayed on the job, right? (laughs) what that does is it it actually impacts your bottom line by as much as 14% of your salary cost. So if you're trying to, you know, wrap an ROI around something that is behavioral, here is one that actually makes sense. So go back to my Atlanta example. We have lots of Fortune, you know, 500 headquartered here in Atlanta. If they had an employee who's faced with a 661 average credit score and they're a subprime borrower, and they're, they've lost income because of COVID or any other situation, they've used up their savings, then you, Mr. or Ms. Employer, could be impacted on the bottom line by 15% of your annual salary cost. It is a no-brainer to address stress. Just a no-brainer. You can get all that data. We, have, we do annual surveys. We do intermittent surveys. And I think, Laura, you're going to add that on to, to this. So... All that, all that research is free. We believe in open source research. So yeah, we'll put that in the episode show notes on our website. Absolutely. Well, and I I would just encourage our listeners. I've seen the salary finance annual survey. It's phenomenal. It's worth the read, regardless of your role or focus in the the benefit space. So, and and I, obviously the research that you're doing, you know, is, is driving uh, is driving action, and I'm just curious. So, for employers who work with salary finance, and the and the you know statistics you just shared here in in this short time are certainly compelling. Can can you walk us through how a typical program works for for an employer? Um. So let's do it from the employee standpoint, and then back into the employer standpoint. So, an employee who has access to the salary finance platform logs into our platform and can access any number of tools, whether those are financial education, financial curriculum, budgeting tools, investment tools. They, They log into the platform and set up a profile and they have access to everything. The journey typically starts with our interactive financial fitness score. So don't laugh at me because you know by now having spoken with me that I think you have to measure everything but it starts with a tool that through a series of questions, the employee figures out where they score in terms of financial wellness. So that they, they land on this continuum from struggling to prospering. So we make it really quite simple for an employee to embrace that their 2.1 on a scale of five puts them somewhere between struggling and coping. And then they have a broad, they also have access to the tools for savings and lending that we'll talk about in a minute. The best way to think about it is there is a customer service rep here in Atlanta who works for one of our employers. They didn't shut down because for whatever reason it was, there was still a skeletal staff um, that went into the office. So she was expected to be there and her Toyota broke down and she needed $1,500 to repair it. 
So she looked at her credit cards. She had $500 left on her Discover card. And so what were her alternatives? She could go to a payday lender because her, she, her FICO score was 570. Uh, she really didn't have high income. She's making about 38000 a year. And she really didn't understand her situation. So she had heard about this you know, financial well-being platform. She logged into our system actually generated a financial fitness score, which I thought was great, but she still didn't understand exactly what to do. So she saw that we have a section on there called resources, and she was able to access free financial coach through our resources. So she visited with a financial coach who looked at her particular situation and gave her advice and gave her advice on the the car, but also said, here's some advice and uh, I'll help you with your coaching through this process to get you to a point where you can advance along this, you know, continuum of savings and embracing it and improve your credit score. So it ended up that she borrowed against her salary. She used a salary linked loan. So rather than paying somewhere around 391% APR on a predatory loan, the coach advised her to borrow from her salary the way that salary finance works is we look at each borrower, we service our own loans. So we look at each borrower and make sure that it's an affordable and a responsible loan, but that the terms work, right? So we don't want to put Mary in a worse situation. Our goal is to just get her out of the position she's in. So we work through terms. And because we take the loan payment from salary, we can be much more inclusive. So it, it mitigates our risk, but it also lets us do lower interest rates. So our interest rates start at 5.9% and they cap out at 19.9. There's nothing predatory in the model, Wow! but we're oddly inclusive. Um, so Mary actually took the loan, she paid for her car, she set it up. And in a very short period of time, her credit score popped by 48 points and she was saving $100 a month. Now, the reason her credit score went up is we report to all the credit bureaus. We report timely payments because they're coming out of salary. That's awesome. So Mary's credit score went up. She had access to a coach. She had continued access to a coach. Her savings started to increase. And she went through the curriculum to gain an understanding and start to build some resiliency. Wow. So it's behavior-based, as you might suspect, given my anthropological side. But it's also technology-based. And it's also very much inclusive in terms of being able to help a much broader piece of your population and can target your most vulnerable who sadly are driven to alternative lenders and predatory lenders. Wow, that's really cool. So I'm wondering, you painted a really clear picture for us of what the outcomes are for individuals. How how have you seen employers fare with the program? What are kind of the outcomes for them? Thank you for asking that because we didn't measure our own outcomes. It's actually Harvard did a study and happy to share that as well. But they found that by implementing the salary finance solution that employers were experiencing a 28% increase in retention Wow! and delivering about 11% to the bottom line. Wow! So you think about 20% retention has all of those affiliated costs as well of you know, recruiting and training and the cost of turnover far outweighs you know, the cost of retention. So by simply helping people with their financial situations, they gained loyalty among their employees that they felt as though the culture 
you know, was helping them in many ways find a better life. Wow. When you think about what you would have to do in a company to improve the bottom line by 11%, I mean, that's, that's a major change. That's a major growth. Yes. And you know, you'd have to cobble together a number of solutions in that process, right? And test it. But in this case, the efficacy of the program was tested by Harvard. And so we're delighted to be able to do that. And then it costs nothing. So, you know, you, you have no cost to offset. So the ROI is strictly based upon what you can deliver to your employees in terms of satisfaction. Right. That sounds like a win-win to me. Employees obviously winning, and that's a great story that you shared, but certainly from the employer's perspective. And, and I think that makes it even better, right? When both of those key stakeholders are, are, able to, uh, are able to win. I also think, I mean, I can bring this right back to healthcare because a significant percentage of our employees face increasingly larger deductibles and emergencies. And so uh, much of our borrowing in the 20 percentile is actually associated with the need to cover a healthcare expense. So there's also, again, a a direct impact of increasing cost of healthcare on employee stress as well. And people make decisions, uh, you know, if I don't have the money, do I go without? And I, I saw this you know, lots of, I think it was like 32% of working Americans have outstanding medical debt. So a lot of the debt that we even see where people will consolidate debt or rewrite bad debt is often related to medical debt. So we have many employees who will borrow and create a salary linked loan to rewrite debt that's in the 20 percentile down to 14% APR and put on average $1,100 back into their pocket in interest that they've saved. Wow. And a lot associated with, with medical debt. Wow, that's really incredible. Wow, that's great. Yep. Well, Anita, this has been a really awesome conversation. I, before we let you go, I want to take an opportunity. On every episode, we, you know, we talk to all kinds of leaders who've done just incredible things in their lives. And we want to leave our listeners with something that can help them grow professionally. So I'm wondering if there's a resource or a book that really had a big impact on you as a person or as a leader that you think everybody should read. Absolutely. So it's a new book. It's by Raj Sisodia. He's a professor at Babson and an amazing, he's one of the founders of Conscious Capitalism. He wrote a book and I think it's really quite timely. It's called The Healing Organization. And his premise in the book is that businesses have evolved to a place where they should be a source for healing for employees and customers and communities, like the entire ecosystem. And at some point, I think he even embraces the planet. And his argument is that, you know, the purpose of business has evolved from the days of Drucker, but business about taking care of customers or Milton Friedman saying business is about profit. Raj is saying that really business is about alleviating suffering and elevating joy and and really just sort of serving the needs of everybody. And there's three principles of healing in the book. The first one is do no harm. The second one is root out evil. And the third one is love conquers all. And when I read the book, it didn't just make me think, it made me feel. And, and I will tell you maybe why there's a sort of moral legitimacy that I think businesses need to embrace. But he also made me think about, I broke my ankle two years ago. And when I do something, I do it, I lean in, right? <laughs> 
So this was pretty badly broken, I'm guessing. <laughs> and uh, it required titanium plates. I am definitely Iron Man at this point. Wow. But I had a complication that I didn't even know. And I ended up back in the hospital. And they told me based on this complication, it was like the biggest blood clot they had ever seen. They told my son and I that night that I was likely to die. And I remember that moment every day. And I have learned that it's called the sacred moment in healthcare, mm -hmm. where the doctor doesn't talk about the diagnosis or what's going to happen, but they talk about the emotional part of this and, and they, it's the human part of this. And I think that we as a country and maybe as the world are at this, this sacred moment of business where something like a healing organization is really on the forefront, I think, to make a difference, whether it's COVID or financial stress or medical care. And so I encourage everybody to read the book and reach out to, again, it's Raj Sisodia. It's an amazing book. And I think if we think about those principles of leadership and principles of healing, in fact, we have a chance to, to shape a future for, for ourselves. Wow. Well, that's definitely going on my reading list now. I will be putting a link in, in the show notes. Anita, thank you so much for having this conversation. I think this has truly been a, a sacred hour for us to have you know, a conversation and step back from the daily grind of building these organizations, but to have a conversation about why this matters and, and what ultimately we're trying to achieve and, and who that's for. And so... It's been a real privilege to have you and really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. I, I've enjoyed it very much. And thanks for the authenticity and for bringing these conversations to the forefront. So absolutely. Thank you. Wow. So Mike, so much to take away from this conversation. I'm wondering what is sticking out to you? Yeah. First, a, a big thank you to uh, Anita. I mean, obviously, her story was, as I said earlier, you know, inspiring and, and powerful. And uh, again, I commend her for sharing it, but I also commend her for taking action. And we've heard that theme a couple of different times in, in some of our prior episodes. But you know, we all can can certainly make a difference. And I think Anita's journey has fueled her to do some really incredible work in this space. I, I think the second thing for me was. She used a couple of terms, which I just love, or phrases, I guess. One was surviving to thriving. The other was struggling to prospering. And, and you know, that just inspires hope for me, you know, as, as we've been building Brella and as we've been interacting with brokers and employers in the market and guests on this podcast. I mean, the fact is, you know, we find ourselves in a really difficult environment. Employees and, and American families find themselves in very a very difficult uh, environment. But I'm encouraged by hope and I'm encouraged by optimism and I'm encouraged by good companies doing good work in this space. So uh, again, just uh, uh, affirmation for, uh, for what we're doing and, and uh, how we can impact individuals through the uh, lens of employee benefits. How about for you? Yeah, I, I'm still reeling from all of the numbers that Anita shared. She said that 67% of employees are financially stressed, and that includes people who make over $100,000 a year. That's massive. And she also said that 69% have less than $1,000 in savings. And we know that the vast majority of folks have deductibles higher than $1,000. And so that means that 
you know, one health issue in the year is going to wipe that out. And, you know, certainly we're going to do our part to put some cash in their hands when those types of things happen. But it's great to know that salary finance is there prepared to put them in a position to borrow at an interest rate that is fair and to report their faithful payments out of their salary to credit bureaus so that they're they're building credit at the same time as they're taking care of these bills. And, and that's the kind of thing that can prevent a bankruptcy. And we've been in a, the situation for a long time now where two-thirds of personal bankruptcies are because of medical bills. And so you know, together, I feel like we're, we're sort of two sides of the same coin of saying, how can, we, how can we reverse that trend? I think that's really exciting. Yep. Well said. Well said. So one final takeaway, and I guess I'm going to sort of plug what we're doing here at Brella. You know, for our audience, if what we heard today doesn't really put into the forefront some of the challenges that that we face and and uh, the difficulties for you know the typical employee and their families. I'm not sure what will. So I'm going to just ask our audience to not let the old ways in which we've done things stand in the way of making a difference in employees' lives. You know, we all, whether you're a broker or employer, you know, another company in the benefits space or any other stakeholder, we're all sort of touching this world and we have a really tremendous opportunity to 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 make a difference. So, you know, I I as we come through fourth quarter, Laura, I continue to see and hear how, you know, there's just a a set way in which things have always been done in this space. And I really think there's an opportunity for us to just push and challenge that. So if you're a broker and employer listening, you know, let's not wait till the next open enrollment to think about potentially impacting someone's life. In a, in a positive manner through through a benefit at uh, the workplace. So that's my shameless umbrella plug. Uh, we're here to help, ready to roll up our sleeves and, and be a valuable addition to uh, to that story. So if any of the discussion resonated with you today and you want to get involved or want to learn more, please email me at sales at joinbrella.com. And like I said, we're working with brokers and their Texas-based clients right now. It's not too late to uh, implement Brella and, and make a difference in the overall benefits package. So Laura, with that, I'll turn it over to you to bring us home. All right, great. As I mentioned, we will have the show notes, including the research from Salary Finance, the amazing book that Anita mentioned, and all the information about how you can take action and make changes based on what you've heard today. We just want to make this as helpful as possible to folks out there. So with that, we'll wrap it up. Thanks so much. And this has been episode number six of the Better Benefits Podcast. Visit joinbrella.com slash podcast for notes from today's show. And if you liked the episode, share it with a colleague. This helps us spread the word. Be sure to subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss our next episode. And that's a wrap. This is Laura Cave and Mike Zarillo from the Better Benefits Podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.